0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now in Matthew, the second part of the chapter, so this is audio Matthew 4b. Last time in audio 4a, we talked about the temptation of Jesus. Now, Jesus had been ministering down there in the wilderness, and it's, we're starting in verse 12, we read this. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And so then Jesus leaves, and he's going to start his Galilean ministry. But first, let's talk about why John got cast into prison. We know from history that he was thrown into the prison that's about 25 miles southeast of where the Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea, to the east of the Dead Sea in present-day Jordan, a a very famous prison called Macherus. I think is how you pronounce it, M-A-C-H-E-R-U-S. And he was cast into prison there for calling out Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. The Romans put Herod Antipas in charge of Galilee in the north, but also Perea to the east of the Jordan. That's why he had jurisdiction over where John was. Perea ran from the Dead Sea in the north to the, from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. Why did Herod Antipas get ticked off at John. He used to love to listen to him preach repentance. But uh, unfortunately, Herod Antipas uh, he probably threw him in jail because he was scared that John had messianic aspirations. He would cause a revolt, and the Romans would get mad at Herod Antipas because of that, and so he put him into in prison. But he still would go down to the prison and listen to John preach. Well, unfortunately, Herod Antipas had deprived his half-brother, Herod II, also known as Herod the Philip, of his wife. Herodias and Herod Antipas had divorced his first wife and married a second wife who was his half brother's original wife who was originally his half brother's wife so Herodias, Herodias and Antipas are now married and that was incest by Levitical law John the Baptist kept calling Herod Antipas out about it you shouldn't be doing this Herod or if you ever saw Herodias I suppose he did the same thing to her and Herodias didn't like it so when Salome did a sexy dance at a banquet and Herod was so pleased he said I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom And Herodias goes back to her mother, and uh, Salome, goes back to her mother Herodias and says, Mom, what should I ask for? Herodias says, ask for John the Baptist's head. We'll shut him up. And so that's what happened to John the Baptist. Great prophet of God. He ends up in a prison, beheaded. Jesus goes up to Galilee. Why did he go up there? Well, I think the obvious reason was is to avoid Herod Antipas, the same guy that threw John the Baptist in jail, is likely not going to be up happy with Jesus either, raising Messianic expectations, getting the, Jews, getting the Romans all upset. And so it was logical for Jesus to, to head out of town. When he went up there, some people say he went up there so he could call his disciples, and they lived in Galilee, so it was necessary to go to Galilee to call them. Four or five of the twelve lived there, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It could be because in Galilee there was much less religious bigotry toward the Jews, and Jesus, of course, is preaching a a Jewish kingdom here at first, a kingdom which first was to be composed of Jews. I don't want to sound like a dispensationalist. Uh, And so because there were so many Gentiles up north there, there would be less bigotry because there's less Jews. So that's one reason he could have gone up there less opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Also, Galilee was centrally located, as James, Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. Large numbers passed through the region on their way down to the festivals in Jerusalem, so he would have a great opportunity for ministry up there. It was also very convenient for crossing the lake to minister into the Gentile areas and Decapolis and, 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 the, area, and the cities alongside the lake. Jesus did that a lot. So, for whatever reason, and they're all good reasons, Jesus goes up the north. Now, he did a lot of stuff in the south that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us anything out, uh, tell us anything about. Now, the Gospel of John does tell us about this. Uh, It tells us that Jesus started his ministry before John the Baptist got arrested, so there's some ministry going on down there that we don't read about in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, There was more than just a brief interval between Jesus's baptism and John's imprisonment, so during that time between Uh, When Jesus started his ministry in John the Baptist's arrest, Jesus did a lot of ministry down there. It was more than just a brief uh, period of time. And um, Jesus also left Galilee at some time to come down to Jerusalem to minister and went back up to Galilee. Now, this is all... Very interesting. If you're interested in the so-called synoptic problem, which I'm not really, I like to know the chronology the best I can, but that's roughly what, there was a lot of stuff that happened in John that's not recorded in the synoptics is all we need to know for right now. So anyway, Jesus goes up, Matthew 4.13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Well, he left the south in the area around Jerusalem, and now he's left Nazareth. So apparently he went to Nazareth first as he left Jerusalem, and leaving there he went and settled in Capernaum, which, was, which was, became his hometown which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali, Naphtali. Now, Capernaum is uh, not mentioned in the Old Testament. It was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, but it evidently became a sizable town in Jesus' day, according to the NIV study Bible, and it was probably built after the Jews came back from Babylon, according to Adam Clark. Peter's house there became Jesus' base of operations during his ministry in Galilee. It's interesting, the Jews speak very evilly of this city, and it's undoubtedly because it was the birthplace of Christ, and the Jews hated Jesus. The inhabitants there were said to be great sinners, heretics, and dealers in magic art. Capernaum was called Jesus' own city in Matthew 9. Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, he paid taxes there, according to Adam Clark, because Matthew 17:24 says, "When they came to Capernaum, those who, collect, Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, 'Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax?' So he was done for taxes in his hometown. So." He's, that's his main base of operations. But now it says he left Nazareth before he came to, this verse says he left Nazareth before he came to Capernaum. Why did he leave Nazareth? Because they wholly rejected his word there and even attempted to kill him. In Luke chapter 4 verse 29, they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off, throw him down the cliff. Now, I've been to Nazareth. Uh, It is on the edge of a hill, a very, very high hill and a steep hill. The road goes right by the edge of the hill. On on one side of the road, you've got shops, including a Hardee's. I thought, this is great. The birthplace of Jesus has got a Hardee's hamburger joint. But on the other side, there's a, a cliff that would be very easy to throw, throw somebody off of. Of course, remember, Jesus passed through. There was, he was a prophet without honor in his hometown. He didn't, couldn't do many miracles there because nobody believed. Now, Capernaum is said to be in the regions of Naphtali and Zebulon. Naphtali or Naphtali and Zebulon. I looked up Naphtali and Naphtali on a YouTube pronounce video to learn how to pronounce it. And that's how you do. Naphtali and Naphtali. Naphtali was to the northeast. It was the province to the northeast of Capernaum, and Zebulon, Zebulon, I'm sorry, was to, mostly to the west and a little bit south of the Sea of Galilee. So that was the area right around the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is, and that's important because it helps it helps uh, fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah. If you look at the map, you can see this, and you can't see the map on the audio, but we need to remember these map boundaries are not exactly precise because people don't know exactly at a given time where the boundaries went. Precise boundaries cannot be traced out now, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and I know that because I've looked at a lot of maps, and sometimes they don't agree with each other. Now, uh, there's uh, interesting that scholars debate how many trips Jesus took to Nazareth to come back to Capernaum from, Some people say he took two trips. Some people say he took one trip. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. This was to fulfill, this going and settling down in Capernaum, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2 that Matthew's quoting. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now I won't read the 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 uh, verse in Isaiah which was being quoted here because it's almost exactly the same. Well, I will read it. There's a few changes. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. That's not in the that's not in the part that Matthew quoted. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. All right. Now, first of all, we need to take care of this expression beyond the Jordan. Normally that means to the east of the Jordan. Here's an exception to the rule. It means beyond the Jordan going to the west. So it's the land west of the Jordan. This is where the Sea of Galilee was, where Capernaum was. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, if you look at the two uh, map, the intersection of those two, well, Capernaum is directly in the bottom part, the southernmost part of Naphtali, and it's just barely off of the eastern border of Zebulun. So it's the region there, the land of, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the two nearest tribes. So Isaiah is pointing to a particular place. And it was called Galilee of the Gentiles because there were so many Gentiles living up there in Galilee. In fact, Galilee had a very bad reputation uh, by, from the Jews because of so many Gentile dogs living up there. Now the people were sitting in darkness. Why? Well, this was the area that was carried off into captivity, 722, by the, by the, Phine- by the Assyrians. In the famous northern captivity and they, they were the ones that took the brunt of it up there they got wiped out so as far looking at this idea of the gentiles being up there let me read a quote from jameson fawcett and brown the northern tribes were in the direct highway of all the invaders from the north and unbroken communications unbroken communication with the promiscuous races who have always occupied the heights of lebanon that's right due north and in close and peaceful alliance with the most commercial nation of the ancient world, of Phoenicians, because Lebanon is basically where Phoenicia. Le- the area of Lebanon is basically the area of Phoenicia, north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. And Phoenicia, as you know, was a fantastic trader. They sent ships all over the place. It was a great commercial nation, and so there was a lot of international people up there. Twenty of the cities of Galilee were actually annexed by Solomon to the ancient adjacent kingdom of Tyre. And formed with their territory the quote unquote boundary or the quote unquote offscouring of the two dominions at a later time still known by the general name of the boundaries or the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So right up there in that area in Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon. And if you go a little bit further east, you got Syria, uh, and that's all right next to this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, and that's the the population that you're getting here. So that Isaiah fulfilled that prophesied exactly the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people were sitting in darkness because they had no hope, they had no Messiah, their land had been basically wiped out by the Assyrians seven centuries earlier, and now it was being occupied by the Romans, and they had no hope. And all of a sudden they saw Jesus around there ministering, as we'll see in a minute, healing everybody and preaching repentance in the kingdom of God. So they saw a great light. Now, light is a common metaphor for uh, things of God. Think about it. Um, In this New Jerusalem, there'll be no need for the, the sun because there's nothing but light in there. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appeared in great light on the road to Damascus. Paul saw Jesus with a great light. Light is a very common metaphor for the things of God or for Jesus or for God. John 1.4 says this, In him was life, and Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Then ASB actually capitalizes light to show that the light refers to Jesus. It's kind of like a proper noun for Jesus. Daniel 2.22 says this, It is he, referring to God, who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And I've thought about this. You think about, in nature, what is the fastest thing that can happen? It's the speed of light. Nothing goes beyond the speed of light. It can't happen, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, which I believe to be true. And it's interesting, according to the theory of relativity, relative to us, if somebody is going to the speed of light, his clock slows down. The faster he approaches the speed of light, the slower his clock goes and the slower he ages compared to us. And if he ever reached the speed of light, his clock would go to zero and time would be no more and he would stop aging and he would be eternal. And I thought about that. Now, this is an idea for a scientist who is also a preacher. I'm not a preacher and I'm not a scientist. But wouldn't it be interesting to think about this, that perhaps the God who shows himself to human beings as light all over the scriptures Perhaps he also designed the world so that the the ultimate, the limit, the eternal, is the speed of light or light. I don't know. Just an idea I had. Isaiah says that uh, these people were living in anguish and contempt, this Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's because Assyria, as I said earlier, had carried those provinces captive. And, well, we can read that in 2 king, Kings 15.29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, that's around 7.22. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured captured Ijon and abometh and Genoa and Kedesh, Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee. All the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So the the, the, word, the the province is actually mentioned in the Old Testament when the Assyrians wiped them out. Now, because of that Isaiah prophecy, the ancient Jews actually expected the Messiah to make his first appearance there in Galilee. And if they hadn't been so hard-hearted and blinded, they would have realized, hey, you know, Jesus is from Galilee, and uh, he's uh, he's not from Jerusalem. He's from Galilee. He's not from he's not from Bethlehem, because there was also a prophecy in Micah five that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but there's also a prophecy in Isaiah that says that the great his great light would shine first shine forth first in Galilee. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so blinded in their religious stupidity, bigotry, and hatred of God that they didn't they didn't see the Son of God right in their backyards. Go to Matthew chapter four, verse seventeen. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that his message is, is exactly the same message that John the Baptist's message was. Repent. That's why when we tell people today, because Jesus is basically telling people how to get into his kingdom, which is basically what we're doing, when we tell people about Jesus, we need to use that magic word, repent. When I say magic word, I don't mean it's, I don't mean it's a, a formula. I mean, we need to get across the concept that if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to turn from your sins. You need to have a change of heart, and you need to look back on your sins and say, I don't like my sins. I want to get rid of them. I hate them, and I want to follow Jesus instead. instead. You have to deal with sin in order to come into the kingdom. And what did John the Baptist and Jesus do? Well, the first thing they said is repent, deal with your sin, turn away from it then ask God to forgive you for it and to give you power to conquer it in the future as you as you start your life of sanctification the kingdom of heaven is at hand that doesn't mean that there was not a kingdom then in heaven because of course God rules in heaven with over the angels and the departed saints but he, what he is he obviously means here is the kingdom of heaven on earth is at hand because the church was coming soon after Jesus died resurrected and the holy spirit came at Pentecost. Let me go back to that idea of repent. There's no point in talking about the benefits of the kingdom without repentance. There's a lot of people, and I've witnessed to a lot of people, and oh, I, and I, in fact, I kind of emphasize this. There's so many good things when you follow Jesus, and I've noticed that a lot of people, they think God is some kind of elderly grandfather sitting up on a couch looking, da- looking down on the earth and saying, hey, come up and talk to me sometime, and hey, here's a present for you, you. know, That's not who God is. He's a holy God, and to approach a holy God you need to repent to take advantage of Jesus' sacrifice and covering and atonement for your sins. Now, it says from that time Jesus began to preach, probably from the time that Satan finished tempting him, Gil said, because it can't be from the time he started living in Capernaum, because he had preached in Nazareth before he came to Capernaum, because the people in Nazareth kicked him out and he went to Capernaum. Uh, it can't be the time from John, the time that John the Baptist was thrown into prison, because Jesus had actually preached and made disciples before John was imprisoned. John 3.22 says this, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So there's, that's that period of time that's not mentioned in the synoptic gospels he was preaching down in the south. John 4, one says this, therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so you see, John the Baptist was uh, Jesus was making disciples down there uh, right after he was baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist. So that's probably not what time he's talking about. He's talking about from the time That Satan finished. He not only ministered in the south, he ministered in Nazareth, and then he settled down in Capernaum to make Capernaum his base of operations. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 20. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, why was Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee? He could have been doing it because he needed a walk for recreation, for diversion. It could have been he just was walking for no particular reason and accidentally ran into Simon and Andrew. But most people think, or at least I think at least, that he was purposely looking for his disciples because he knew Simon and Andrew from his time down in, in Judea when he was ministering after he was baptized in water and the Holy Spirit by John the Baptist. John chapter one verses forty through forty one says this one of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist speak, and followed him, followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brothers. Brother He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. So that means, and that was down there in the south. So that means Jesus already knew Simon and Andrew. And so when he saw them up in Capernaum, he, they were already primed and ready to go. So I think Jesus probably went and looked for him. He knew they were fishermen. He saw them fishing and went out to find them and says, "I want to make you fisher of men, evangelist." Simon is also known as Simeon in Acts 15. This name was actually given to him later by Jesus, so that he was not called Simon right here in Matthew 4 yet, even though Matthew calls him that a little bit anachronistically. Why did did Jesus call him Simon? Because Simon means rock. He says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that you are Petros, and upon this rock, that you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And that, of course, that controverted verse, I think it means the confession that Peter made that Jesus was Lord. And so upon that confession of Peter, the church was built. Now, Peter uh, Peter, and Andrew were simple fishermen, poor fishermen. One wonders if Jesus purposely first called fishermen in order to make a point that his disciples were to be fishers of men. The first disciples were not powerful, educated, wealthy men. They were despicable and contemptible, according to John Gill, and this was to show God's incredible power. He started the church with fishermen. He could have called powerful scribes and Pharisees, people who knew the Bible frontwards and backwards, but he didn't. He called illiterate, or maybe not illiterate, but he called simple poor fishermen. So the application here for us, of course, is you do not have to be highly educated to preach. I've been listening to a lot of Reformed Presbyterian podcasts recently, and it's amazing to me how hard it is for them to find preachers. They're constantly talking about, it. he served as quote-unquote stated supply for this church and that church, because they, to get to be a Presbyterian preacher, you've got to go through all these hoops. you got to be examined in your ordination examination. You got to go to seminary. You got to do all this stuff. And as a result, they don't have a lot of people who are qualified to preach. Well, you know, I hear all that, and then I think, well, what about Simon and Andrew? How qualified were they to to preach? They followed Jesus. They followed the Master, and they learned on the job. Now, fishers of men. This was probably an allusion to Ezekiel 47. This is one of my favorite passages, prophetic passages in the Old Testament. This is referring to the rivers of living water that trickle down through the north, this ideal, so-called ideal temple in Ezekiel 47. It's, it's not an actual temple, but it's a, a metaphorical or prophetic-type temple. And on the northern side of it, water ran through the walls of the courtyard there and, and toward the, uh, the altar in the front, the bronze altar. Then I think it was on the south side of the bronze altar. It turned and went due east went through the courtyard door there, the gate there, that went down outside of the temple area into the Arabah Valley, then took a right to the south and went on down to the south. The interesting thing about this water is that it rose as it went because it was living water, living water that brought forth life. Now, let's read the section that's applicable to the fish that's in this living water. Then he said to me, this is God saying to Ezekiel, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah." That's the valley there that runs from the Dead Sea to the from, the, from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea all the way down to the Persian Gulf. These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arba. Then they go toward the sea. That's, that's uh, the Dead Sea being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea became fresh. The Dead Sea, which was full of salt and asphalt and whatever else it had in it that kept things from living in it. This living water made the Dead Sea alive again. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. It's living water. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and others become fresh. When you see fish and water, you know the water is bringing life, and the fish and the fish are living. So everything will live where the river goes. So I think those fish are symbolic of the people that are going to live by this living water. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En-Gedi, that's halfway down the coast of the Sea of, Gal- uh, of the Dead Sea, to Inaglam. I don't know where that is. From En-Gedi to Inaglam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. That's somewhere on the coast of the Dead Sea. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. Very many. So the Dead Sea will be alive, just like the Mediterranean Sea. All of this is symbolic of all the people that are going to be coming into the kingdom because of the living water. And so Jesus. And I'm convinced that Jesus was referring to this. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, notice how long it took for Simon and Andrew to decide to follow Jesus. They immediately put down their nets and followed after him. What a powerful call Jesus' words must have been. And, you know, it's not easy to walk away from your job on a dive. That was their livelihood. They were poor. They had no other way to make a living. They said, we'll follow you. They Now, they did have some... Pr- preparation down there listening to John the Baptist's testimony and they had met Jesus in the south but they knew who he was and they knew he was special they might not have known he was the messiah yet but they knew he was special he was at least a prophet now when Jesus said follow me that was a Jewish term that meant be my disciple be my scholar if you will or be my disciple so this was not just a mere a mild thing this was a serious thing a change in relationship a change in status you're going to stop being a fisherman, and you're going to be a disciple of me, Simon and Andrew. Matthew 4:21 through 22. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this is the second set of brothers. First four disciples here. James, John, the son of Zebedee, of course, they're very famous in the gospel history. They were mending their nets. They were washing them, mending them, hanging them up the dry, just doing the work of a fisherman. They were poor and undereducated because they were fishermen. And just like Simon and Andrew, they immediately left the boat when they heard Jesus calling. As it shows again, the incredible power. When Jesus calls people, they follow. Now, notice that they not only left their occupation like Simon and Andrew did. They left their own father. You know, it's hard when your father sets you up in a business and you're working with your father and you just turn to leave the business with him. Leave the business. You, you know, I, you know, lots of stories like that. I can hear Zebedee, what? After all I've trained you for, you are leaving this fisherman business to follow a poor, uneducated carpenter's son, teaching some new religious doctrine? What about your future? And what about me in my old age? I can hear it now. Families love to complain about kids who sell their souls to the gospel, especially in China, because most of the parents are Buddhist or materialist, and these kids get saved and the parents say I, i'm thinking of one right now parents said you marry a christian you can forget about ever setting your foot in this house again she stood her ground she married a christian and the guy finally uh broke down the buddhist he, he wasn't gonna kick his daughter out I, that, that's the, i know two stories like that another uh, worker at a university i worked in had the same problem it took her years to marry her christian husband because the buddhist parent says no 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 all kinds of persecution when you want to leave your family. Leaving your family is a hard thing to do. But James and John did it. Now we do need to note that Zebedee was not left in poverty. He still had his business. In fact, he had enough money. He had hired servants because in Mark one twenty it says they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. So... Zebedee had enough money to hire people, so he he wasn't he wasn't hurting that bad. Now, if you go to Luke, there's a difference of opinion as to whether Luke chapter five verses one through eleven is a parallel passage. They're called there these two, James and John. Uh, but in Luke, you got Simon and Peter and James and John all four called together at the same time, and there was a glorious miracle that happened before. There was a huge crowd pressing upon Jesus. Those details are left out in Matthew. I don't. I. I, I always like the simple solution. Don't split things up. Make make them unified if possible, just to keep things easier. Matthew could have easily left out those details. That that I don't find any problem in harmonizing those two accounts. Matthew four verse twenty three. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now, this is what Jesus did. He taught, he preached, and he healed. Taught, which means he basically, I'm sure, was talking about how he fulfilled prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. Proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. That's the preaching. Please come into the kingdom if you would so desire. And then, of course, he healed. Now, Galilee, as I said previously in a previous verse, was a country that was mean and despicable, inhabited by persons poor, illiterate, vile, and wicked, in John Gill's flowery language, florid language. Gill also points out it was a very populous area. There were 204 cities and towns. That's in addition to villages. This is from Josephus. Now, Jesus taught in synagogues. He didn't creep into private houses like Pharisees and false apostles did to over all people. He openly and publicly preached where he could be challenged publicly. Of course, he wasn't afraid of that. Put to shame anybody who ever messed with him. Now he healed every kind of disease, every sickness, and every disease. Now every or all can mean all without exception, or it can mean all without distinction. And here the NASB translates it as all without distinction. In other words, every kind of disease, not every individual disease of everybody that was sick all throughout Galilee. But he healed every kind of disease. For example, epilepsy, maniacs, and stuff like that. He mentions later in the later verse. How you translate that, uh, I don't know. Uh, I suspect that that's what he means. I don't believe that every sick person in that whole area able was able to get on their donkeys and ride to where Jesus was. So I don't believe it means he healed every single one. But I don't think we ought to use that as to say, well, see there, healing's not all that important. Now, on the other hand. These word faith people, word of faith people, and I grew up amongst them in my early Christian life when I was a young man in college. I heard them say over and over again, all always means all, so Jesus healed every disease. That gives the doctrine of healing a bad name because it's preposterously and palpably false. All does not always mean all. There's scores of examples. All you got to do is look in a lexicon, look at the look up the examples, all does not mean all. It means all without all all kinds of, all kinds of categories of and this is what it means here all kinds of diseases well even even saying that there's no denying that Jesus was healing sickness everywhere and major sicknesses the, the miracles were huge and that's what happens you know people always say well why aren't people healed today well people are healed today but usually more people are healed when there's revival going on When the Holy Spirit is moving, you're going to find more healings than in just ordinary times. And that's why I'm saying if you ever get sick, try to go where there's a revival and try to avoid all the kookiness and the nuttiness that always attends these things. Find out where the Holy Spirit's really moving, and there's more chance of you getting healed. I don't know why God doesn't heal everybody. I know John Wimber, who uh, made his ministerial career on the idea of signs and wonders for evangelism. He started the Vineyard Churches. He said that he thought that he was dealing with that vexing question, why is everybody not healed? He would see people healed in one meeting, and then right it's next to the people that were healed, there were people that weren't healed. So why is this? And, of course, there's no answer except in the will of God. There's no answer to it, really. But he would, he, Wimber said it's because the kingdom is already but not yet. Now, everybody loves to quote that because it's true. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's started, but it's a growing thing and progressing thing, and we're not going to see the fullness of the kingdom until it's consummated at the end when Jesus is returning. and then by golly there's not going to be any sickness, not going to be any sickness at all. We won't, we won't even need healing. it'll be completely taken care of. But at any rate, Jesus was healing. Of course, these are signs of the kingdom. Uh, Isaiah is the blind see the deaf, blind seeing the deaf here, and you know, that's how you know the kingdoms here. So Jesus is doing these miracles not only for signs but also for compassion for the people who were sick. Now let's talk about the synagogues where Jesus was preaching. There was two senses of the word synagogue. One, it's just like we have two senses for the word church. The church is the body of people that meet, or it's the building they meet in. And we kind of slide the language over from the original meaning of the people to the building. Same thing with synagogue. A synagogue is a gathering of people, or it's the building where the people met. The Jewish synagogues probably started after the return from the Babylonian captivity. They were in the country. They were in the cities. They were in the towns. They were especially by rivers. They were everywhere. They were by rivers because there was a lot of water they had to do. The Jews needed to do all the frequent washings and ablutions they did. A large town might have many synagogues. The smallest had to have a minimum of ten people. These people were had to be prominent. They had to be independently wealthy. They had to have. Uh, they had to be skilled in the law. The furniture in the synagogue was an ark or a chest that was shaped after the ark of the covenant to remind people of the law that was contained, the Torah, which was contained in the original covenant, which was lost by this time. The men sat below. The women sat in galleries above. They segregated the genders, and they had apartments in the synagogue uh, rooms for tools and utensils and alms chest places to put offerings. The synagogue was governed by a council over whom was a president or a ruler. The terms for these synagogue presidents were many in the Gospels. They were called the chiefs of the Jews, the rulers, the elders, the governors, the overseers, the fathers of the synagogue. I remember reading these words and wondering, what are they talking about? Well, that's what they're talking about, leaders of the synagogues. The services in those synagogues were performed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and night. So there was plenty of opportunity for Jesus to go around preaching the kingdom. Now notice how the healing went along with preaching the kingdom. Adam Clark mentioned six things that preachers of the kingdom do, and not once did he mention healing. Why is it that evangelical theologians are so blind to healing? I've lived 23 years in China, and I cannot tell you how many people. I heard personal first-hand testimonies of how dozens of churches were started because some poor person in the countryside got healed of one time it was mental illness, one time with a hole in the heart, all kinds of uh, diseases like that, and people hear about it, and they start coming, and they get saved, but oh no, we got people like Todd Friel of Wretched Radio saying that anybody that believes that there's uh, spiritual gifts and miracles after the time of the apostles is a fringe wingding, a fringe wingding, tell that to the Chinese church, please, and John MacArthur and his buddy, what's his name, Phil Dr. Phil, I can't remember his name, his first, his right-hand man there, uh, watching him on YouTube, and he says, I don't think charismatics have done a bit of good to the world. They don't do, engage in charity. They don't do things. Just, I mean, it's one thing to disagree theologically and be a cessationist. It's another thing to commit slander, and that was basically slander. Has he ever heard of Operation Blessing? Oh, that's a charismatic outfit. Pat Roberts of Virginia City, he's, he's given money to, people, to, to, to poor relief and famine relief and disaster relief all over the world. But, oh, no, not one bit of good has been done by charismatics, according to the quasi-deist John MacArthur. Why? Look at the original gospel. It was repentance and it was healing. If you want to know more about cessationism and charismatic stuff, including how we get rid of the kooks and the nuts and the extremists in the charismatic movements, uh, I would invite you to listen to my YouTube videos on Charismata. All right, let's go to verse 24, Matthew 4. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. Syria is right north of Israel, from the Mediterranean Sea, from the west all the way to the east to Damascus. And they brought to him all who were ill. And again, that's not exhaustively all. That means, all could not only mean all exclusively or all without distinction, it can also mean many, like all who were in this football stadium stood up to cheer. Well, not those who were in the bathroom. They didn't stand up to cheer. It just means many of them. They brought to him all who were ill, but that still doesn't gainsay. There was a lot of people getting healed. And they all and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them. And all those who say that healing is not for today and we ought not to pray for healing, think about that word suffering. You ever been sick? I mean, I've never been sick bad, but even a little bit I've been sick. I hate it. I hate it worse than, I was about to say worse than hell itself, I don't know because I've never been to hell, I'm sure it's pretty bad down there, but sickness is getting pretty close, it's awful, and especially when it's serious diseases, demoniac, demoniac, uh, demon possession, epileptics, paralytics, they were suffering. There were human suffering, and Jesus healed them. So the next time you want to go around saying, well, you know, I don't believe healing's is for today. The healing just builds my character. Why did Jesus tell those people, well, you know, I want you to stay being a demoniac. I want you to stay being an epileptic. I want you to stay being a paralytic, because it'll build your character. Did he ever say that? And, and if sickness builds your character so much, why do you go to a doctor, cessationist? What's the point? Because as soon as that doctor heals you, then you can't get sanctified anymore, because the sickness has gone away. It's amazing the nutty stuff. If people would just stop and think what they were saying. I'm talking about respectable people in the evangelical church. If you would stop and think about what you're saying, you would realize that you were speaking nonsense. And if you would just quit throwing rocks at the nut jobs and the fake healers and all the the people who weren't healed and all the negative stuff out there. And I know that's out there. I don't deny that. But if you would quit doing that and point and look at the people that are being that are sick and are suffering from disease, and think maybe you ought to start praying that Jesus heal them. Where I've already talked about Syria, it's also called Syrophoenicia. Remember the Syrophoenician woman? Now the woman. This is Mark's chapter seven, verse twenty-six. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. If you remember the story, he found he said, "Hey." What I don't have anything for the Gentile dogs around the table. You're not seated around the Jewish table. And she said, yes, I'm a Gentile dog, but I'll eat the crumbs from the table. And Jesus said, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. So he healed her because he first came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But interesting here, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Where he settled down in Capernaum. Where did he minister to? Did he minister to Jews? No, he was ministering to people in from Phoenicia, on the, uh, in Syrah Phoenicia, in Lebanon, on the coast, all the way up there north of Capernaum, in an area that was full of Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then, if you keep going to the East, He ends up in Syria, Damascus, and around there, and that's where all those people were coming from, and they were Gentiles, they weren't Jews, because even from the beginning, even in Matthew, the most Jewish of the Gospels, we see the fact that the Gospel is universal, it's spreading out, and it's to go everywhere, to China, to Phoenicia, excuse me, to Singapore, to Japan, to California and every other pagan place in the world. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He was getting people from Jerusalem and Judea who were coming south up to north. That's how far his fame had spread. And the Decapolis is a league of ten cities that was basically east of the Jordan River up there north, right, right east of the Sea of Galilee. Nine of the cities were there. One of them was Basham, which is south of the Sea of Galilee on the west of the Jordan River. It was a league of free cities. There was, there was a lot of culture there. It was high Greek culture. The, uh, you remember the Gadarene demoniac? Well, Gadara was one of the cities of Decapolis. But anyway, there were large crowds coming from all over, not only from the south, from the Jews, but the Gentiles in the north. From the very beginning, the gospel was somewhat universal, not Merely Jewish. Now, there's some options as to what were the motives in the crowds to come to see Jesus. Well, many of them, of course, as we've seen, wanted to get healed. Some might have just been curious. Some might have been excited because they thought, oh, the Messiah is here. They might have actually thought Jesus was the Messiah. Not all, but some. Some wanted to hear Jesus' teaching about the kingdom because he taught not as the Pharisees, but as one with authority, not as the rabbi. So, there's lots of motives. Now, let me say something here again. There's another thing that irritates me. People say. Well, you, people just, they came to Jesus for the wrong motives. They just wanted to get healed. What Did Jesus ever rebuke anybody to come to him because they wanted to get healed? If you were sick, you probably want to get healed too. I just can't even stand to hear that anymore. It's just made so sick. I don't care what their motives were. And it, their motives might have been mixed. Their motives not, might not have been perfect. But the point is, is they were going to Jesus to see how he could bestow his grace upon them. And I've got no problem with people getting sick going to Jesus. I guarantee if I ever get sick like that, I'm going straight to Jesus. And I'm not going to listen to cessationist evangelicals They say, see there, they're seeking the signs instead of the giver of the signs. These were large crowds that went out to see him. Jesus was pulling bigger crowds than John the Baptist. is probably because of all the healing he was doing. John the Baptist didn't do healing. Now, this area beyond the Jordan, where the Decapolis was, it was the name of a distinct country, which would be good to know, Perea, because it comes up a lot. It's If you look on a map, it goes from the east of the Jordan, from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south, so it's kind of easy, easily, it's in the valley there, it's easy to point out. So anyway, all this geography shows you what an incredible word that Jesus is preaching, what powerful his ministry was, and the excitement that he was causing. And with that excitement, sign off and get ready for chapter 5, which will be coming up in the next video. Enjoy this video.